From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Example number one. When she was 19, Lenore had a job selling tickets at a Haunted Mansion tourist attraction near Orlando, Florida. And one day she found, in a stairwell, a wallet someone dropped. Leather, she says, with a green rubber band, tons of cash inside, like a vacationer brings on a big trip. It seemed obvious what to do next. She should figure out how to give it back. But two of the guys she worked with were like, let's not. Let's keep the money. And if they come back looking for it, we can say, we don't have it. We didn't find it. And they'll never know. And Mm -hmm. I said, no, we have to return it. And they start telling me how ridiculous I'm being. And I'm such a goody two-shoes. And why am I like this? Why? Who knows? But the one time that she tried shoplifting when she was 10, on a dare, she couldn't stand it and returned the pack of gum and apologized. Lenore was also excited at the idea that she could be a hero, that the guy on the ID in the wallet would come in and be like, excuse me, have you seen my wallet? And I'd say, here it is. And he'd be like, you're amazing. You saved the whole family's vacation. And he and his wife and kids would all cheer. And I'd bow and say thank you. And we'd hug. Remember, she's 19. So she tucks the wallet safely in her cash register drawer. Sure enough, a few hours later, the guy in the ID shows up. She very triumphantly pulls it out of the drawer. And I said, here it is. And he grabs it out of my hands, and he starts rifling through it. And uh, he looks through and he says, some of the money is missing. And I just thought, no. No, I've had it the whole time. And he said, no, some of the money is missing. Did you take my money? You took my money. This is not going how she pictured. At all. And my heart started racing. I started sweating. Why does he think I did this? He doesn't know me. I would never do that. He keeps berating her, insisting that she stole from him. It's awful. Finally, the guy's wife tells him to just let it go. And he turns and heads for the door. And then as he was leaving, he said, you know, karma will find you. And I just stood there like, what happened? I don't get it. I did everything right. She did everything right. And it didn't work out as planned. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many examples of this. When we're kids, it's one of the hardest lessons we learn. Example number two. So I am, I believe, 10 years old at the time. Jordan Pasarsik was, in fact, a lucky 10-year-old because his parents got tickets to the tennis event in the United States, the U.S. Open. And he'd be seeing the number one player in the world. Jordan had been to baseball games with his parents, but not much tennis. We sat down in the seat and I said, oh, maybe we'll be able to catch a ball if they hit it out. It was Pete Sampras playing, who I was a big fan of. And so my my father, he said, oh, this is, uh, tennis is not like baseball. You can't keep the ball the way you can if, you, if there's a home run or a foul ball. You have to throw it back as soon as you catch it. That's that's the rule in, in tennis. Mm-hmm. And what felt like 10 to 15 minutes after that, um, a ball came heading right toward us out of play. Right. My dad, who is a very tall man, he's 6'5", jumped up and grabbed the ball with one hand and pulled it back down. But his dad didn't throw the ball back. It made no sense. He just taught him the rule. So, of course, I started saying, Dad, you're supposed to throw it back. Because are you like kind of a rules follower kid? I, I would say I am, yes. And so I'm saying, Dad, you got to throw it back. Yeah. And he's kind of gesturing to me. It's fine. It's okay. Don't don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, you know, he's kind of holding it tight to him. And 
So finally, he kind of hands it over to me and says, here, just just hold on to it. It's fine. And I said, no, you have to throw it back. And as I was saying that, I toss the ball out. The ball starts flying. So the ball lands squarely on the court while play is happening. And suddenly, of course, play immediately stops and there's this audible gasp that rises from the crowd. It felt like all eyes were on me. So, of course, I'm like melting into my seat. Humiliated in front of all these people and Pete Sampras. You try to follow the rule. You try to do what's right. And see where you end up? Example three. Apparently this can also happen to you if you're one of the most successful, famous people in the world. I won't lie, I'm not too good. (laughs) (laughs) You're watching that new Beatles documentary series that Peter Jackson just put out, where we see them trying to create 14 songs in just two weeks for the concert and album Let It Be. In episode one, if you haven't seen this, George Harrison shows up at rehearsal on time every morning. John Lennon, by the way, usually late. George Harrison has brought songs that he's written. The band is desperate for songs, and he has songs. But when he pulls them out, John and Paul do not seem enthusiastic. This is a Harry song. There's no solo or anything complicated. George walks him through the chord changes. Oh, so the chords really are E to F sharp minor. The song that he's teaching them is All Things Must Pass, which someday, after the Beatles break up, Harrison will release on his own, and it'll be a big hit. The album All Things Must Pass will be the number one album on the Billboard charts for seven weeks and receive near-universal critical praise. Harrison has done everything right. But in this room, not enough. He's completely overshadowed in these sessions by the kind of mind-blowing brilliance of Paul McCartney. If you've only uh, seen one clip of this new documentary, it's probably this one that's made the rounds on social media. It starts with McCartney trying to invent a song out of nothing. And so he starts uh, strumming chords, stumbles into fragments of what's going to be the Beatles single, Get Back. Really, within minutes, it seems like he conjures from nothing. First the melody, then the chorus, then the verses of this song that most of us grew up with. By the end of the first um, episode of this TV documentary, Harrison has walked out of the rehearsals. And it's not clear that he's ever going to return. And who can blame him? He did it right. And Paul and John still don't want his song. It doesn't end up on a Beatles album. This is one of the most supremely confusing things that happens to us as people. We do what's right, we do what's asked, we follow the rules, we look out for others, we act responsibly, and it does not work out like we hoped. Today in our program, we see people in all sorts of situations puzzling out that ancient riddle in their own lives, including, by the way, later in the hour, parents and children who purchase an ant farm. Stay with us. One, damned if you don't. So the person in this first story, Rebecca Schrader, is somebody, as you'll hear, who's very committed to doing the right thing in all parts of her life. She works as a sonographer, ran one of the ultrasound machines at an OB clinic in Durham, North Carolina, started about a decade ago. She's great at her job, very diligent. And then she saw something on her ultrasound screen and had to figure out what to do. 
By the way, uh, throughout the story, we're going to use the words Rebecca, typical uses around pregnancy and fetuses. She says uh, the words babies, mothers, women, though, of course, those aren't the words everybody uses. We found out about Rebecca from reporter Emma Green, who first talked to her a few years ago and has been reporting a religion and the way it intersects with politics for about a decade. Here's Emma. It never really occurred to me that one of the perks of working in an obstetrics clinic is off-the-books access to an ultrasound machine. But Rebecca told me that lots of pregnant women have daydreamed about this scenario. I've had so many patients who have come to me and said, oh, if I had an ultrasound machine, I'd scan myself all the time. And you do when you're pregnant and you're a sonographer. And so I would try to get in a position and try to, like, straighten out and just scan myself standing up. What was that like? They obviously weren't, like, the best images, but we could at least see a heart rate. And as long as I saw a heart rate, I was like, okay, we're good. This was back in 2012, during Rebecca's first pregnancy. She was married in her late 20s. She really wanted to be a mom. And it made her less anxious to be able to see what was happening with her baby. Rebecca knew exactly what could go wrong in a pregnancy because the clinic where she worked at Duke specialized in complicated and risky pregnancies. Things like chromosomal abnormalities or pregnancies with a high possibility of miscarriage or stillbirth. Just to warn listeners, issues like this are going to come up a lot in this story. At work, she prided herself especially on taking really good 3D images with tons of detail. And I would do it while the baby was moving, and so... It really helped women. I could see them getting emotional watching it on the screen, knowing that maybe my baby might have some disability, but that's okay because that gave them hope to see that I'm going to love this baby regardless of whether they have a disability or whether they maybe don't survive birth. Working in an OB clinic made sense for Rebecca. She's from a family of scientists and doctors, and she always loved babies. But her love for her work also came from her faith. She was a member of Summit, one of the most prominent Southern Baptist megachurches in the country. And she believed life begins at conception. Every tiny heartbeat she saw on the ultrasound screen was a living human being. She thought abortion was morally wrong. She even spent her Thursday nights volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. These centers are the pro-life movement's answer to Planned Parenthood. They're designed to discourage women from getting abortions. And they do things like provide free diapers and parenting classes and ultrasounds. That's what Rebecca helped with. So anyways, those free ultrasounds Rebecca gave herself. Once she was pregnant, going through this new experience, she developed this Monday morning ritual at work. She'd head straight to her ultrasound room, stand up in front of her screen, squirt jelly on her abdomen, and grab the probe which looks a little bit like a Nintendo Wii controller. Here's what she saw. Week six, the flicker of a heartbeat. Week seven, little arm buds. Week nine, toes. And then when I got to the 10th week, um, I was scanning myself and I noticed there was some fluid on the back of the neck and I noticed that there was like a bulge kind of right by the abdomen. Rebecca went to find one of the doctors she worked with. Her boss came too to do another scan. You know, I know, I know the looks between doctors and sonographers. I know what those mean. I mean, they weren't going to hide anything from me. Which was, what did you see? Um, Just them looking at each other and just kind of an unease between the two of them, knowing that there was something definitely really wrong, but we weren't sure exactly what it was, which is what the doctor told me. It was just kind of like a drop, my stomach dropped. Rebecca and her husband, Josh, eventually got a likely diagnosis, limb body wall complex. 
This is extremely rare. By 15 weeks, most of the baby's organs, the stomach, liver, intestines, were hanging outside of the abdomen. The baby's spine was bent at a 90-degree angle. Those anomalies were enough to know that either the baby was going to have thousands of surgeries when it was born alive, or it could end up being stillborn. So um, I think they said most babies don't live to be a year old. So there's very rare circumstances that the baby even lived a few days or months. But there was no recorded baby of being over a year old. They had to decide what to do. Rebecca knew our doctor might bring up abortion. Do you remember how that conversation went with your doctors? Yeah, so um, we had sat down and she said, you know, I know they all knew what my personal beliefs were. And so she said, you know, I know normally what you would choose, you might choose to carry to term, but since this is such a low risk of survival, what are you thinking now? This is likely going to end in the baby dying at some point, either before birth or after birth. They still gave me that option to terminate. Do you remember how you internally reacted to that suggestion? Um, kind of dismissively, I guess. Like, it wasn't even on the table in my eyes. How did your husband react? Um, similar. Very like, oh, we're going to carry to term. We were pretty much on the same page. She would carry the baby as long as she could, even though it would have been safer for her own health to terminate. Generally speaking, pregnancy and delivery carry a lot of inherent risks. But Rebecca believed she had to give her baby a chance. There was a purpose for her baby's life, even if Rebecca didn't quite know what it was yet. It wasn't her place to change the course of her pregnancy. As a sonographer, she knew there was basically no possibility that her baby would be born alive and survive. But as a Christian, she felt she had to be faithful and keep praying hard that God would intervene. Like, there was a tiny bit of hope still there. Um, I do feel like so many people saying, I'm praying for a miracle and stuff, did give me a little bit of hope. Maybe the baby would survive. Do you feel like you needed that little sliver of hope in order to continue caring? I do believe that I probably craved it, um, especially being visibly pregnant and scanning people every day. And everyone's asking me, every patient that I have is asking me about it. Are you having a boy or a girl? And do you have a nursery already? And all that stuff. So I do feel like I kind of held on to hope for a little bit. In a strange way, she wasn't surprised that something had gone terribly wrong with her pregnancy. Rebecca always had this feeling in the back of her mind, like God was going to use her or test her in some way. Because she worked at a place where most of her coworkers were pro-choice and where the doctors referred patients to get abortions at a nearby clinic all the time. Rebecca started a blog called Afflictions Eclipsed by Glory, a line from a popular Christian song. She made it to share all the complicated medical details she was sorting through with her family and friends. But she also hoped it would reach beyond her circle with a specific message. I do feel like I wanted to empower women by saying, I made this choice, and if you feel like you can, then I'm telling you I did it so that maybe you feel like you can do it too. And I just wanted to be used by God in whatever way he had me. So I just kind of wrote every blog with very honest feelings. In one of her entries, she wrote, quote, You may not notice, but I cry a lot, usually alone, in my car, apartment, or ultrasound room but always silent and always in control. 
At 18 weeks, Rebecca and Josh announced on their blog that they were having a girl. They named her Cora Kimberly. Rebecca came to see her pregnancy as a personal cross that would provide some inevitable redemption. And this idea was reflected back to her at church. When Rebecca first started going to Summit, it felt really large. But she volunteered in the baby room during services and got to know people and found this group of women who she could really talk to, her small group. That's the term in evangelical speak for the people she prayed with every week. These were her closest friends in Durham, the people who invited her and her husband to baseball games and had them over to their houses for cookouts. When Rebecca shared the latest on her pregnancy, they'd tell her how strong she was. People knew the Schraders when they walked into church. They'd sometimes stop Rebecca in the halls and say they'd read her blog and they were praying for her. At Summit, she was like this pro-life darling. One Monday in her third trimester, Rebecca went into work and started her week like she always did, alone in her ultrasound room, running the probe over her belly. And I saw that she didn't have a heartbeat, and it was just, like, all of a sudden everything became surreal at that point. Like, one of my first thoughts was, now I'm going to have to go through labor to deliver her, and she's not going to be alive. Thinking about everything she was about to have to do made her incredibly anxious. I've never labored before. This is my first baby. And then I was, you know, going to hold her. And I had no idea. I hadn't held my own baby ever. And so here I am. I'm going to hold a baby who's no longer living. And so it was just a lot of feeling of dread. At the hospital, doctors gave Rebecca a drug to start her labor. Church friends were in the room when she started pushing. Cora was so tiny, just one pound, two ounces, that it only took about five minutes for Rebecca to deliver her. The room was silent. Later that day, two pastors from Summit came by to pray with Rebecca. They read her verses from the Book of Lamentations. I don't even really remember crying that much when I was in the room, I think because I was surrounded by so many other people, and I just didn't allow myself that moment of grief until everyone had left and I was by myself at night. Did you still, in this moment, feel that God was using you? I mean, I feel like I was completely, like, still kind of in shock, I guess, in the moment. Um, But I felt like maybe God was using me in a way that I didn't even know yet. Cora's headstone bears the title of the classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Rebecca got the same phrase tattooed on the underside of her wrist. After Cora died... Rebecca and her husband decided to adopt a kid. This is pretty common in the evangelical and pro-life worlds. It was something our church really supported. And while they were going through this process, they also started trying for another pregnancy. It happened fast. Rebecca's due date was just a couple of weeks before the first anniversary of Cora's death. She scanned herself every week, just like she had done with Cora. But this time, everything was perfect. I was a little anxious, but she came early, so that was helpful. She came at like 38 and a half weeks, so I didn't have to worry too, too long. And um, my labor was really easy and good, and everything about it was great. And so when she came out, it was just all joy. And so I thought maybe this is my gift after being through something so horrible. They named her Lydia. She was their rainbow baby, which is what the pregnancy loss world calls a birth after a miscarriage, stillbirth, or infant death. This glimpse of brightness. 
People at her church were extra excited for her. They told her and Josh how much they deserved it. And then the adoption went through. The Schrader's son, Abin, came to North Carolina from Ethiopia. He was about two years older than Lydia. The Schraders wanted a big family, something like four kids. They bought a minivan. But little by little, in the background of all that life unfolding, Rebecca was thinking about her pro-life stance and questioning it. Her questions came from little observations, things she felt in her body. Like after losing Cora, Rebecca learned that the drug doctors use to induce her labor is also used in some abortion procedures. And Rebecca realized that some women who had abortions, some but not all, were part of the very small group who could viscerally understand one of the hardest parts of what she went through, laboring to deliver a body that will never cry out. It made me realize that a lot for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, abortion can be a very traumatic, unwanted procedure that they feel like they have no choice to go through. And that's kind of how I felt like I was going through this birth. I didn't want to deliver her. I didn't want to deliver her body. I didn't want to have to go through that. The strangeness of that shared experience started to make her feel a new kind of empathy for women who'd had abortions. Her pro-life world at Summit started looking different to her. The way people talked about abortion was so black and white and she was starting to see some gray. But she knew she couldn't say anything about all of this at church. In 2017, Rebecca found out she was pregnant a third time. And seven weeks in, scanning herself, she noticed something was wrong with the baby's head. Against all odds, the worst thing was happening. Again. Another pregnancy with a fatal diagnosis. This time, anencephaly an extremely rare disorder where parts of the brain and skull are missing or develop abnormally. Babies with this diagnosis are usually stillborn or die within a couple of hours or days. There's no chance of survival. How did it feel to have another challenging diagnosis? Did you feel like God was playing a, a joke on you? Did you feel like you were just profoundly unlucky? Like, What was that like to be there again? I was like, maybe God put me in this situation again to, I don't know, test me or, um, you know, show himself again. But why did he have to do it this way? I was mad that we were doing this again. I was mad that I was going to have, like, it, I was almost mad that I was going to have to choose life. Like, I wanted to, but I was also mad at the decision that I was having to make, it felt like. Because this was different than Cora. I didn't have any hope. There wasn't any hope. Doctors later told Rebecca there wasn't any genetic or medical explanation for why she and Josh had two pregnancies that went so wrong. They just got very, very unlucky. They had to sit down again with a doctor to talk about what to do. It ended up being the same doctor who had talked them through their decision with Cora. She said the same thing again. She was like, I know that you carried to term before. I don't want to assume because I remember this. She said, I don't want to assume that you're going to carry the term again. She was like, so I just want to put termination on the on the table. She was like, and if you need to talk about it, I can be here to talk about it. If you want to talk about it with just your husband alone, you can do that. And I remember looking over at my husband, like me saying, yes, we're going to carry the term, and him saying at the same time, I don't know. Like we both said it at the same time. The doctor noticed that we both said different things, stepped out, and we had a conversation right then and there about it. And, like, I guess I felt like I couldn't live with myself if I personally chose 
knowing that I had done this before, what would I be saying? Would I be saying Cora was more worthy that uh, I liked this baby more than this baby or this baby deserved a chance and this one didn't? And he was like, I don't know if we can do this again. Eventually, they decided together that Rebecca would continue the pregnancy. They also gave this baby a name, Layla Kate. But Rebecca's pregnancy with Layla was very different from the one she had with Cora. Back then, she talked with her small group at church constantly about what was going on with Cora and how she was feeling. With Layla, she didn't really want to talk about it at all. Rebecca spent most of her days at work trying to dissociate from what was happening, but she couldn't ignore it entirely. Layla was way more active than Cora, kicking and tumbling around. For a while, Rebecca stopped reading the Bible. She couldn't pray. She couldn't sing hymns. I grieved with Cora, like, in a sad way. When Layla came along, I came out more in a rage. What does that mean? I remember a very specific incident where I was doing laundry. I started freaking out and throwing the laundry, and then I ended up, like, punching the dresser and, like, jamming my finger. And it was just, like, I... I had just, like, held it in for so long, being at work, trying to, like, hold it in, holding all my emotions. It all came out at one time. And, of course, it was at home. So it, like, happened kind of in front of my kids and stuff, and they were confused as to why I was so, like, yelling and angry. And I was like, I just can't pretend. Like, my pretending was just at a – we were at a limit. The thing Rebecca wanted most of all, her number one prayer request – was to hold Layla alive after she was born. She became hyper-focused on the idea that Layla's organs could be donated to medical research. She was grasping for a sense of purpose, still hoping she would get some kind of redemption. And then one night, roughly a week before she was scheduled to be induced, she felt like something was off. And I was like, well, maybe she's just tired and doesn't want to move. Maybe this is just the day she doesn't move. And I went into work, even though I wasn't supposed to be at work. I went in to scan myself because I just couldn't handle anxiety. And that's when I found out that she didn't have a heartbeat. It almost felt like an immediate rejection. And, like, my prayer hadn't been heard. And and I, I felt like I asked for so little in these, like, big situations. And I felt like I didn't get it. Because Layla wasn't born alive, her organs couldn't be donated. The family buried her in a plot near Cora. When Rebecca returned to work after Layla's death, it felt good to be back at first. She felt especially drawn to helping families who knew their babies were not going to survive. So the doctors specifically gave those cases to her. But her grief was persistent, a debilitating fog in her head. All day, every day, she performed ultrasounds in the very same room where she had discovered that both Cora and Layla's heartbeats had stopped. There was this picture of tulips, her favorite flower in her ultrasound room. She used to love it. But now it was a constant reminder of what she had lost. Just seeing the ultrasound machine and being in that room was enough to make me nervous. My heart would race when I had to take a patient in sometimes. Like, I was always fearful that the same thing was going to happen. I was going to scan somebody who had a surprise abnormality, and I was going to have to tell them. I just didn't—I didn't want to go through those feelings again. Rebecca got a therapist— went on depression meds. But after an entire year of feeling so unsteady at work, she decided she actually had to leave her job. 
she found a new position at a regular OB clinic, where the patients were mostly young and healthy and had uncomplicated pregnancies. On her blog, she posted a picture of herself holding a pill in her open hand. The entry is titled, It's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. You can see Cora and Layla's names tattooed on her wrist below that phrase, It is well with my soul. This time around, Rebecca really felt like she wanted to talk openly about how hard and painful all of this had been. She saw an opportunity to speak publicly at this event her church holds, called Sanctity of Life Sunday. Lots of conservative churches use Sanctity of Life Sunday each year to preach about the pro-life cause. I did many times reach out to our church and say, hey, Sanctity of Life Sunday is coming up. I would be happy to speak, and this is my story. And I mean, I sent that to to our head pastor and many of the other pastors and it was never like brought up or answered like it was just amazing to me that I had been through this twice I could go up there and speak um, about it and I was in the church I was a member of the church and they never asked me to I asked some leaders at Summit about this including a lead pastor and they said that they're often choosing from multiple stories and don't have enough time at services for each one to be shared But Rebecca believes she wasn't given a chance to speak because only a certain kind of woman gets featured at Sanctity of Life Sunday. The woman who chose life, sometimes against doctor's advice and certainly against all odds, and God rewarded her for her faith. She was given some heart-wrenching diagnosis, but her baby was born completely fine. Or she was told her son would have severe disabilities, but here he is at church, thriving as an adult. With Cora, Rebecca easily fit into this archetype. Her church community rallied around her with their prayers and their presence. And she did get her redemption story in a way, with Lydia arriving so soon after Cora's death and Abin's adoption not too long after that. But now Rebecca felt like her life no longer fit a clean redemption storyline. I can't imagine going up there at the front of the church saying, this is what happened, and then my baby died. And then it was really hard, and I was really depressed and mad at God. Like, they didn't want to be told that it was hard. Um, They wanted to hear me when I was with Cora saying I had hope and I was okay. But, like, I think my grief after Layla was way more authentic than it was after Cora. And people felt uncomfortable about that. To be clear, Summit leaders say they don't only want to hear happy stories. But that's not how Rebecca sees it. When her experience of making a pro-life decision got more complicated, when she felt more ambivalence, it was like they didn't want anything to do with her. Rebecca was feeling incredibly alienated in the pro-life world, but she slowly started to realize that other evangelical women were feeling the same way. They were coming to her, quietly, sometimes at church, sometimes online, telling her their stories, messy ones that also wouldn't make the stage at Sanctity of Life Sunday. Like there was this one woman from church named Jen. She was pretty involved at Summit. Rebecca first met her when they were both helping with childcare during Sunday services. They had a lot in common. Jen also grew up in a really conservative Christian world, really wanted to be a mom. And when she got pregnant for the first time, she also got this diagnosis that came out of nowhere, trisomy 13, a rare condition with little chance of survival. When Rebecca heard about Jen's situation through the grapevine at church, she immediately thought about what she'd been through with Cora and Layla. But Rebecca learned that Jen might be considering an abortion. Rebecca texted her. I had said something like, um, regardless of the choice you make, I'm here with you. If you need to call me and vent or need to talk to me, just know I'm safe. They didn't know each other very well back then, 
but Jen told me Rebecca's message allowed her to admit to herself that she might get an abortion, and it would be okay if she did. Ultimately, Jen chose to terminate her pregnancy. Afterwards, at church, Jen didn't hear from any of the pastors. Some didn't want to comment on this specific situation, but they said in general, they aim for their ministry to be shaped by the approach of Jesus, who went to people in crisis. Jen didn't feel like she could have a straight conversation with her small group. Sometimes, she just told people she'd lost the baby, letting them think it was a miscarriage. Rebecca saw this and felt sad that Jen didn't feel like she could be honest. Rebecca believed church should be the place where people who are hurting can find comfort and a community to walk alongside them. She was disappointed that Summit could be so cold. Especially in Jen's case, where it wasn't even a choice between a healthy baby and an abortion, between life and death. The baby was likely going to die. And so here we are in a a situation where it was death and death, and there's no real choice there. It's just, it is what it is. And so that really changed my view on abortion. Rebecca understood why Jen chose to have an abortion and believed she should have the right to do it. This idea would have been unthinkable to her only a few years earlier. She still struggled with the thought that healthy women with viable pregnancies would choose to terminate, but she also believed she couldn't know exactly what their reasons were, and it wasn't up to her to dictate someone else's decision. She decided to share all of this in a blog post, a post that her family and friends and many online followers would see. It was scary. Rebecca worried that people would think she wasn't a Christian anymore. She wrote, quote, I am an evangelical, pro-life, registered Republican who believes Roe v. Wade doesn't need to be overturned in an effort to decrease abortions. I chose life for two babies, knowing they would die, and I do not believe that should be a choice women are forced into making. And then once I hit publish, I was just like, okay, here we go, because I knew there was going to be some sort of backlash. Did you get pastors trashing you? What kind of feedback were you getting? Jezebel, pro-abortionist, liberal. When you hear somebody calling you a Jezebel, like, what do you think they're trying to say to you? Um, Like a non-biblical woman, I think, is what they were trying to get across. Like somebody who is controversial, non-biblical, somebody who should be kind of cast aside. I'm just saying we don't know everyone's circumstances, and we can't force women to make a decision. So so you felt like the fact that you had with your own life— chosen to do this really, really, really hard thing based on your convictions basically counted for nothing Mm -hmm. after you came out and said that you supported legal abortion. Yes. So some people, some people even told me I didn't do enough, that I should have had them all, had the babies resuscitated and I should have done all the surgeries possible and all the interventions possible because I didn't do enough. One evangelical blog wrote a couple of posts about Rebecca deriding her as a, quote, very confused person. Other bloggers screenshotted comments she made on Twitter and sent them to her pastor in her church, trying to prove that she wasn't a faithful Christian. Her pastor was a big deal in the evangelical world, and bloggers started attacking him just for being associated with her. They wanted Rebecca kicked out of her church. That didn't happen, and summit leaders say they get attacked online all the time. They tend to ignore nasty comments rather than responding to them directly. But to Rebecca, it felt conspicuous that summit leaders never reached out or stepped up to defend her.
after everything that happened, Rebecca spent months agonizing over whether she and her family should even stay at Summit. It wasn't just the abortion issue. There was other stuff, too. In particular, they didn't think the predominantly white world of Summit would be a good place to raise Abin, who's black. Rebecca and Josh are white. They finally left last winter. Rebecca still strongly identifies as a Christian, and she's still close with her small group. But she's unsure where her place in the Christian world should be. While it feels hard to not be the pro-life darling that I once was, I feel like, um, it almost feels like churches and stuff don't know what to do with me. They don't know where to put me. When it comes to abortion, Rebecca says she's personally pro-life. When she looks at her ultrasound screen at work, she still sees a human being. But she's less sure than she once was that life begins at conception. I was talking about this with a friend recently who's also very similar to me. I do feel like there's a lot of us out there who are kind of in between, and we just don't know which side to go to because we don't fit in the pro-life movement. We don't fit in the pro-choice movement. We're kind of in the middle, and we see good in both, um, and that we don't know if they will ever mesh or if they will just go further apart. In all my years of reporting on abortion, this is the one thing that struck me over and over again. Most people are actually like Rebecca and her friend, caught between pro-life and pro-choice in some way or another. Polls show that most Americans think abortion should be legal in some form. But when it comes to spelling out the exact circumstances of when it should be allowed or the morals of it, people are much more ambivalent. Most of us land in a gray area. And in this moment, where the Supreme Court is about to make decisions that could dramatically change abortion in the United States, it's useful to remember that most people, most experiences, have never really fit into a neat binary. When you're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, it's not as simple as picking which team you're on. It's way more murky and complicated than that. So do you feel, having gone through everything that you did, that do you still feel like that was God's plan for you? Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a reason why it all happened, whether I see it or not. Um, I don't feel like it was a mistake at all. I do feel, I mean, I still feel anger to this day that it even happened, period. But I don't feel any regret. I feel like it was the right choice for me. Um, I would do it all over again. I would choose life for Cora and Layla as much as I know that it caused pain because they were my daughters and I loved them and I cared for them. And and similarly, I'm not getting pregnant because I know that I would have to have another baby that could have another diagnosis. And I don't want to put myself in that situation where I might have to choose. I might not choose life. I don't know. For all the clarity Rebecca has come to over the last few years, she's ended up with much less certainty about her life and life's big questions. She never got her picture-perfect minivan full of kids. This grieves her, leaves her feeling unsettled. But maybe that's where God meets us, she thinks, in that broken, uncertain place. Emma Green. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. She reported this story in collaboration with The Atlantic and the podcast The Experiment, where this story is also appearing. Coming up, two people disagreeing about something so big, so fundamental, so important in their lives, 
But I have to say, doing it in the nicest possible way. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, but I did everything right. Stories uh, where people do what they have been told is best, they do what they think is right, and it doesn't come out the way they thought. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Brian and Peg. So when we started to put together today's program about uh, trying to do everything right and where that leads, I remember this uh, conversation that I had this past May with two people, Brian and Peg, who had tried to do everything right. The day um, I met them was also the day that I learned about this disagreement they have. This was um, in an outdoor amphitheater in a public park in Queens. So Brian, can I record you for a little bit as you're, like, organizing things? Is that okay? Just understand that I'm not very organized. <laughs> that day, uh, Brian Walter and a bunch of other volunteers were setting up a local memorial so event this, right? for people who had died of COVID um, in Queens, in New York, which was especially hard hit by the pandemic early on. The memorial uh, was Brian's idea, to have an event where portraits of Queens residents who died of COVID would be placed on empty chairs in this amphitheater. The people who loved them would gather around there were speeches remembering those who passed. When we first came up with this idea, I mean, we did not imagine the scope of what it is today. We thought there was just going to be a few of us in the park with uh, a few benches, maybe 20 or 30 of us. How quickly did it grow? It, it took off. Uh, they, all the tickets were gone in 25 minutes. Yep, 200 tickets. Yeah, and, and Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to bother you one more time if we can just raise it. An energetic, it. gray-haired woman interrupts us. That's job. Peg. But if you can just raise it, it would help. I have to do manual labor now. <laughs> but get that done first. Mom's always the boss. No Is that your mom? Yes, that's my mother. What's been your role in organizing this? <laughs> What's been my role? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I kind of help Ryan flesh out his ideas. Uh, we discussed slash argued over many things. You know, uh, is, why don't you try this? I don't know if that's going to work. You know, why don't we do it this way? You know, back and forth. Um, I guess in some ways I'm the more practical person. Um, Peg's practical and, experience running things includes you know, 30 years as director of religious like education for a couple of Catholic churches, supervising over 20 teachers, hundreds of kids. Her husband, John, Brian's dad, Got COVID right at the beginning, April 2020, and he died a few weeks later. And of course, he's right over there today, and right here. Oh, right here, right up front. Yes, my husband of 57 years. Wow. So, though that's him. Yeah. In the portrait, he's wearing a New York Mets hat and a plaid shirt. So, you know, it, it's been very difficult. It, it's one of those things that you just have to take baby steps to get over. Which brings me to the thing this story is actually about, this disagreement she has with her son Brian. Brian has told other reporters, and he's told me, that he was racked with guilt with the knowledge that he gave his dad COVID. Brian lives in the apartment upstairs from his parents in kind of a traditional Queens two-family house. And uh, when COVID happened, he would go out each day to his job at the MTA. He would ride in the subway. He would work in the tunnels with other people. And he believes he brought home the virus to his dad. Peg is certain he's wrong, that her husband John did not get COVID from Brian. In fact, it was the other way around. John got sick first. Brian, 
Okay, Brian got sick. I am positive that he got it the night that he took John to the hospital. From sitting next to John, well, first of all, he had to help his father down the stairs into the car. And then he sat in the car and drove him first to the urgent care and then into Manhattan to Mount Sinai. And you think that's when Brian got it? I'm sure that's how Brian came down with it, because two days, three days later, he tested positive. And he had not been sick the whole time. And even though he lived upstairs from us in an apartment upstairs, he used to come home from work, go upstairs, and sometimes John would say, he didn't even stop in to say hello. And I said, I know that. He's taking a shower. He'll be down in a few minutes. And he'd come down with mask on, with gloves. I mean, he was being super careful. And I really don't think that he got it any other way but from John. And I don't know how John or I got COVID. And believe me, I've stayed awake long enough at night trying to figure it out. But Brian worries that he gave it to his dad. He worries he did, but I'm positive he didn't. I'm sorry. I keep, no, no, no. I talk with my hands and I keep hitting your mic. I'm sorry. That's interesting, um, though, that, that, that he's chosen to believe that he's to blame. I know. I know that. But I, I'm positive that he's not. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm positive that he's not. Because for John to have been that sick to go in the hospital, he must have gotten it days and days earlier. And then why wasn't Brian sick until after John went to the hospital? Why do you think he thinks that he gave it to her? I just think it's, that's the way he is, that he feels he gave it to him. It's funny, I've, I've heard about people who um, blame themselves. It's almost like it gives him more control of the situation if he thinks he was to blame. It wasn't just like a lightning, bolt of lightning right, or something hitting him. It could be, I don't know. Of course, so many families are in this situation, wondering how somebody they love got COVID. Why did Brian choose to believe this about his dad? Why wasn't he convinced by his mom? He was too busy uh, that particular day to have a real conversation with me about the whole thing, but I dropped by his house later. His dad, John, uh, was a history buff and a Civil War expert and researcher. And by the doorbell, there's an example of John's sense of humor. There's a bronze plaque that reads, on this site in 1897, nothing happened. Brian told me, uh, back when his dad first died, he felt so guilty. Since he got COVID too, he says, it really hit home what his dad must have gone through to have a case that was even worse than his. And he says he thought about it all the time. How would he let this happen to his dad? And what made it especially hard? They were doing everything right, being as careful as they knew how. We thought we were doing everything correct. I mean, everything that that the CDC said. I mean, my mom watches CNN on a good day. She was watching it double during that time. And everything they said, we would wipe everything down. We had bleach outside. We had wipes outside. We had everything. And yet he still got it. Remember March 2020 when all this was so new and we're figuring out how to deal with it? And I was the one who was shopping for the family. And I would separate their groceries. Uh, we had a <laughs> we had a grocery drop-off procedure, and we discussed it at length about how we were going to do this through text messages. We had meetings where I would be at the top of the stairs and they would be at the bottom, and we'd go through about, I'm going to drop this stuff off for you. I'm going to leave it there. Do not come out until I tell you that I'm upstairs. And that's what we did. And then they would come out. My mother would come out, and she would wipe everything down, and we had a whole decontamination station set up in the front of the house. I did the whole gloves in the store and not touching the phone. And I even, 
had in my car a bottle of water and a container of soap that more than once I would just wash my hands in the parking lot before coming home. And, you know, we thought we were doing everything correct. So when you picture giving it to your dad, like, what's the scenario that you run that runs through your head? You don't know what happened. I mean, I can tell you that my dad didn't leave the house and I was the only one going out, you know, so mom couldn't have given it to him. My kids didn't see him, so they couldn't have given it to him. So I was the only kind of link at that point. So, of course, it had to have come from me. How else did he get it? Wait, I hadn't put that together. You're the only one in the whole house who's coming in and out? Yeah, yeah. For, for, for since, since St. Patrick's Day, since even before St. Patrick's Day. Again, it's 2020, very beginning of the lockdown. My parents did not leave this house since the beginning of March, and I was the only one coming in and out. So you're the only contact with the outside world? Yep, yeah. So if the virus got to him at all, you were the only one who right. could have brought it in? Right, that's why I keep thinking that, yeah, because I'm the only one going out. I gotta say, it's really hard to see any way around that. Brian knows all of his mom's arguments that when you look at the dates, that Brian started showing symptoms after his dad got sick. So Brian must have gotten COVID from his dad and not the other way around. Yeah, I mean, her accounting is definitely correct. I guess it doesn't, what it doesn't, it doesn't explain is it still doesn't explain how he got it. You know, in my mind, it still comes back to the fact that I was bringing everything in. So... It's not even so much if I personally had it in me because, again, we did not connect. So we were not together. So it wasn't that I breathed it on him, you know, but bringing everything into the house, I worry about, did I grab the wrong lemonade? Did somebody sneeze on this lemonade before I brought it in? And he got it and he picked it up and that's where he got it. You know, I'm not saying she's wrong, and we just don't know. It's funny. You're not saying she's wrong. She is definitely saying you're wrong. <laughs> that's my mom. <laughs> yep, that's mom. Yeah. But I can also tell mom also doesn't want this hanging over me. A mother's, a mother's first job is to always console her child and help her child think the best and whatnot. So... I'm not saying that she's saying this just to help me get over it, but of course she's never going to say, even if she knew definitively, she is never going to say, oh, you did it. Never going to say that. You know, she's going to say, Brian, uh, you know, you don't know that you did it. There's nothing to prove it. Don't beat yourself up about it. Let it go. And that's that's the way it's always going to be. In the end, of course, they'll never know. His mom can believe what she wants. Brian will believe what he believes. But this is really a classic situation, eventually, with something you can't answer. You know, you think and you think and you think. It gets to the point where you just can't think about it anymore. You know? At that point, the only comfort you have is, if you did screw up, it wasn't for lack of trying. Peg said to me that at some point, you have to let it go. Because you did everything you could. You did everything right. bought the farm. So we close out today's program about people trying to do the right thing with something that happened to one of our staffers here, David Kestenbaum, and his family. They got this uh, kid's toy 
an educational toy that's been popular for decades. And his family followed the instructions that came with it to the letter. And they ended up learning a lesson I feel pretty confident the manufacturers did not intend. Here's David. The ant farm was a gift to our kids from their grandparents. And we were all excited for it. Though, if I'm honest, maybe mostly me. I'd suggested it. I'd never had one growing up, but they seem so cool. It's basically two sheets of see-through plastic, a half inch apart, made into this frame. You get a bunch of sand to put in it. And then when you mail in the coupon, two tubes of live ants come to your house in the mail. The promotional material read, See the amazing behavior of live ants, with a photo of the ants digging elaborate tunnels. Clean tunneling sand, it said. And also, 2016 National Parenting Product Awards winner. So we set it up, put the ants in as directed. There were like a hundred of them. The instructions say to feed them a crumb every week and add a few drops of water now and then. And at first it was amazing. The ants got to work, running in all different directions, over top of each other, picking up little bits of sand in their jaws. It was this chaotic construction site. Here's a little daily diary based on photos I took at the time. March 9, we put them in. 10.50 p.m., digging first exploratory tunnels. Energetic, fast-moving, digging, digging, digging. March 10, morning, 8 a.m. They made a loop, connected two tunnels, reached the bottom. I shot a time-lapse video of them working, like you'd see on a TV nature special. It really was like a secret cross-section of an anthill. But then came the thing they don't touch on at all in the brochure. That, for us, really became the main thing. Later that day, 1.25 p.m., our second day with the ant farm. There's a photo on my phone, close-up of a dead ant, buried in the sand. And a few days later, this video I happened to take. That's where the bodies are in there. And over here. Not only were some of the ants dying, but the other ants were picking up dead ones and carrying them, like soldiers in battle. And they've been taking the bodies and body pieces, there was an ant carrying another's head, over into the corner and burying them. It was this mass grave. It seemed kind of outrageous that this is a kid's toy. I mean, I suppose death is part of other kids' games, but it's imaginary. This was not imaginary. It really was hard to watch. Every morning, I'd look at the ant farm, sitting on the counter in our kitchen. Day after day, they'd carry the new body to the corner and add them to the pile. That guy's still a little alive, yeah. Ugh. The ant farm was basically a six-week exercise in watching things die. Eventually, there were just two ants left, and they did not seem well. They were having trouble walking. Our kids, honestly, were sort of fine with this. Our younger son, who is eight, said, this is horrible. But I think mostly because he had in his mind that they would be pets, like a dog or something. His brother, who is one year older, nine, said, we could just buy more. They stopped looking at it and went on with their lives. But my wife and I felt terrible. The ant farm made us anxious. We felt responsible, like maybe we'd failed the ants. But also, just so much death. There on our kitchen counter every morning, the mass grave. What exactly were we looking at? What was this kid's toy supposed to be teaching us? So I called up a scientist, Deborah Gordon at Stanford, who has studied these kinds of ants, to ask, what the hell? She calmly explained the mass graves. She says, they're actually middens, 
meaning garbage heaps. The ants aren't burying their dead as much as taking out the trash. She says this may have evolved because dead ants sometimes carried disease. Well, they take the dead to the furthest possible place, which ends up being the corner. If you gave them an, a really large space to move around, they'd take them even further away. I've seen them go out on the foraging trails 10, 15 meters away and dump the ant. Wow. So those are ones that I think must be infected in some way. That's a lot of work. What are they dying of in here? Do they die of old age? Is their heart like, on, they have a heart? Is, you know, like the way a heart is only good for however many beats. What fails in them? Uh, I don't think anybody knows how ants die of old age. Ants do have something like a heart and a tiny brain. The ants in the farm, they're all females, she says. Males are only alive for a couple weeks to mate. They have wings. One of the things I've come to appreciate about ants is how alien they are. And maybe the most alien thing about them is that they don't seem to get discouraged. How do you see that in them? Well, I've done lots of mean things to ants in my time. (laughs) Um, One of the experiments that I did was to put out piles of toothpicks for them to clear away. And you can just keep putting out the toothpicks and they keep taking them to the edge of the mound. And if more toothpicks show up, they just take more toothpicks and you know, I've never seen an ant sort of sit down and say, oh, come on, not another toothpick. There's no way I'm doing this. They just keep doing things. And in fact, if you watch ants closely, a lot of what they do just doesn't work. I mean, if they were easily discouraged, they'd never get anywhere. It's very hard to watch ants without wanting to help them. Have you ever done that? I used to try to help them um, in the beginning, but I don't anymore. Uh, because I'm not very good at helping them. You know, they respond mostly to smell. And so if you see the ants trying to carry something and you try to carry it for them, as soon as you pick it up, you've changed the smell and you've changed what it is for them. The thing she told me that stuck with me most about what their lives are like in the little toy ant farm is that their lives are pointless because there is no queen. These are just worker ants separated from their colony in this fake little Truman Show world or if they dig too far, they hit a plastic wall. In fact, she says, they're stuck in a little repeating loop, waiting for a thing that never happens. She says, basically, these ants are supposed to be going out, foraging for food and bringing it back to the nest, and then waiting until they come into contact with enough other ants coming back before going out again. They can tell if an ant has been outside because the sun changes how they smell. But of course, there is no going out. No one leaves the ant farm. So they're probably in some kind of a feedback loop that isn't what they usually do. Because when they go up to another ant, they're never getting a signal that, oh, I've been out and I found food. And I found food, yeah. I see. I wonder what the last ant is going to die of. The last ant is just going to stand around because nothing will happen to it that has any meaning. Knowing this somehow changed things for me. Toward the end of our time with the ants, the daily check-ins felt a little less like grim death watches. I found myself rooting for them in their meaningless lives. It was impressive how they just kept going. One day, we were sure it was over. That morning, I hadn't seen any motion at all on the ant farm. But then, my son saw something down in the corner. There was one left. The last ant. What's it doing, I asked. 
It's doing what it needs to do, he said. I saw the ant again the next day, emerging from a tunnel, carrying a piece of sand in her jaw to nowhere. David Kestenbaum, he's our program's senior editor. program was produced today by Aviva de Kornfeld and Corey Weiner with help from Diane Wu. The people who put together today's program include Bim Adewunmi, Anna Baker, Susan Burton, Sean Cole, Damian Grave, Mickey Meek, Stone Nelson, Catherine Ray Mondo, Elise Spiegel, Robin Semyon, Laura Starcheski, Jessica Suriano, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, and Julie Whitaker. Managing editors Sarah Abdurrahman, our senior editors David Kestenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Eve Snyder, Gemma Bauer, Emily Patel, Amy Barron, Catherine Wells, Emily Botin, Julia Longoria, Nick Bauman, Brent Beck of Grandpa Beck's Games, Nina Christick, and Phil DeVries. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, their lists of favorite shows, tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, his family has the weirdest Halloween tradition I have ever heard of. Every year, they all dress up as Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and go trick-or-treating. Mom's always the boss. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. This American Life.